Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And you're listening to Endurance Sports Innovation. On today's show, we talked to David Tilbury Davis about his training philosophies and how he likes to allow athletes to prescribe their own training. Well, David, uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning for us and uh, afternoon for you, I suppose. My pleasure. For uh, for those of you folks who uh, who haven't heard of David before, he is a, uh, a triathlon coach and works with uh, a variety of athletes. But some of the the names that you may be familiar with are uh, local star Cody Beals, who's certainly an up and comer in the long course scene. Um, local pro Alex Vanderlinden as well, as well as a, a number of other pros and uh, and age group athletes. David has also been my uh, coach mentor for the past uh, year and a little bit, right, David? Yep, indeed. Yeah, and so he's been uh, he's been really instrumental in helping me um, really uh, dive into the the science and the uh, the business and the um, uh, the art of coaching in the last little while. And Andrew, I understand that you also uh, you also work with David uh, quite closely through Stack. What does that look like? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting arrangement actually. It's kind of um, it's very conversational, and quite often we just do a lot of ad lib work where it's just discussions about technology and and how we can improve things. Um, we've also had a lot of discussions centered around Cody because he's someone that we both know quite well. And uh, Cody's a great friend of ours as well. Um, and he's just, uh, he's willing to adopt some of these new technological approaches. And uh, he provides his own insight and innovation as well. Um, so I think it's its a great collaboration all around. And it's something that works really well because we can all provide ideas and we all seem to trust each other. And um, yeah, its it's just been neat to see the evolution of that relationship. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't managed to piss each other off yet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's still plenty of time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's that's great. So as uh, you know, my experience with David has been that he is uh, he certainly leans pretty heavily on the evidence based side of uh, of our sport, um, and always keeping up to date with you know uh, the latest developments. And this is why I think he's a he's a really good fit for the spirit of the show that we're putting on, and that is. Obviously, the the innovative side of uh, of triathlon and endurance sport as a whole. So, uh, as someone who is, uh, as I mentioned, who is who leans pretty heavily on the evidence based side of things, what are some of the more recent developments in the uh, coming through the scientific community, the research community that has that aren't just interesting for you, but that have actually impacted the way that you coach and the way that you deliver your service to your athletes? Um, I think there's a there's a there's a few things that are you know that, that sort of are bubbling around the surface of um, endurance performance as a whole. You know the, the whole debate around um, use of carbohydrate, use of fat in a dietary context and in a performance context continues. Um, and then you know just in terms of equipment technology, you know we're really starting to see you know lots of manufacturers. Um, come out with some some great products from an aerodynamic perspective or a rolling resistance perspective or a fabric technology perspective um, and you know and more and more uh, individuals take an interest in that um, and also at a you know at a professional level um, many pros you know start to actually try and 
sort of leave no stone unturned, you know, whereas in the past, I think there was more of a tendency for many folks to just consider, you know, I need to get fast at swimming, I need to get fast at biking, I need to get fast at running, and everything else is just kind of background noise. And and the reality is, you know, everybody's paying attention to all the little details now. Everybody's doing their homework on, you know, the, their equipment choice. Everybody's doing their homework on their position. Everybody's doing their homework on their nutrition. Everybody's paying attention to the course that they're going to race on or the weather demands, the implications of that for training. You know, how does that impact on maybe doing, you know, warm weather acclimation training, you know, using a sauna or using hot baths. There's, uh, you know, there's there's a lot out there that I, that I think more and more people are becoming aware of and more and more people are taking advantage of. And that's not to say that these things um, take precedent over the fundamentals um, of just training consistently and, um, and a few other things, but, but the reality is, is there's a, um, a lot more science being brought to the table uh, on a variety of fronts. Um, you know, even with sort of, you know, technological devices that are giving us insights into, um, you know, performance, you know, when we're running, um, you know, power measurements, O2 measurements, um, you know, measurements of, of lactate metabolism that are giving us insights into substrate use um, and things like that. So that's a really interesting point you bring up, um, the, the marginal gains philosophy. Um, and I know Team Sky was really pushing that over the last couple of years, and they probably brought that to the forefront of everyone's attention. Um, and they... I mean, I think I, I would probably say I'd kind of interject there and say, you know, that I think that kind of marginal gains in Team Sky thing is a bit of a cliche. I think they've been kind of hammered pretty hard for um, making a mountain out of a molehill. You know, the reality is they just paid attention to a lot of details that people hadn't really considered before. Like, you know, some individuals like to sleep on a on a hard mattress and some on a soft mattress. Some like to be you know, sleeping, you know, on, on a mattress that has a, you know, a, a, is very warm and some, you know, prefer it colder based on their, their sort of natural physiology. And they just went, oh, right, well, let's, let's consider this to improve the quality of sleep that our athletes have and go from there. And I think, you know, everything else got a little bit blown out of proportion, you know, <laughs> you still need to get fit on the bike. Yeah. Obviously you couldn't throw me on one of their bikes and I wouldn't be able to keep up with uh, someone like Chris Froome, but, um, it's, it is, well, I guess it does show the importance of taking an individualized approach as well, where different athletes yes. respond differently to different training stimuli. Um, and, and I think that's something that you've really focused on as well, correct? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't see that there's a sort of a panacea, you know, whether it's the swim training or the bike training or the run training, um, because you have individuals that are, you know, in their 20s, in their 40s, male, female, you know, have, you know, a lot of muscle mass, you know, are quite lean, um, you know, the, they live at altitude, they don't live at altitude, you know, that, that all of those things mean there are subtle differences uh, in in how you need to consider maximizing performance for those individuals, they do still you know Paritos are all eighty twenty you know eighty percent of the training is aerobically orientated, but it's the other twenty where you know maybe you need to kind of consider a slightly different tack to you know other individuals you know somebody may be very anaerobically talented and as a consequence a certain you know, style of swim training would be a really bad idea for that individual. And somebody else might be, 
you know, very definitely not anaerobically talented. And, and that's where then you need to take a, you know, a subtly different approach. And how do you determine that approach? Um, just say you start working with an athlete. So say you were starting to work with me as an athlete, would you look at data from workouts or would you look at, uh, or get direct feedback from them and how the workouts went? Get, I'd look at, look at data, you know, uh, from the past. I'd also, you know, ask them some questions about also about, you know, what do they feel they are as an athlete? You know, do they find that they have a, a natural predisposition to like doing really short and hard efforts? Do they like doing really long, grindy, sort of mentally taxing efforts? Um, you know, what's their athletic history? What sport do they come at it from? Um, you know, I mean, just kind of a, a, as an analogy of disparate backgrounds impacting on performance you know i've seen situations of um individuals that come into the sport from a um a yoga background or a horse riding background and they transpire to have an incredible natural talent to bike racing and handling a bike um and you know it's because they you know they have spent years and years and years adapting their sort of trunk stability um so that you know, they can, you know, be fairly aggressive on the bike. And, and that's just a very, you know, small example. But, you know, there's correlations across other sports that aren't necessarily swim, bike, run that then carry over. Um, so that um, that gives me some insight. And, and then you also can do some testing. You can look at things like uh, critical power testing or critical pace testing, swimming and biking and running. Um or lactate, you can use lactate to, to look under the hood, so to speak. Um, you know, I, I think you can also use training. You know, you can look at sort of baseline workouts that might give you some insight into what's going on. Um, so, like, you know, an example might be just looking at a descending set in the pool um, and paying attention to, you know, their perception of effort and their stroke rate and their pace. Um, and that would give you an insight into, you know, maybe where do they technologically, sorry, where do they, where do they technically break down? Um, you know, where do they hit a point where their, you know, sort of engine is out talking the chassis or, or, or that actually they just can't hold their swim stroke together. So there's all sorts of different approaches you can take that, you know, that aren't just predicated on, you know, get in a lab. And, and I think that's an interesting aspect that you're seeing nowadays is you're seeing more and more um coaches get interested in you know things like lactate testing things like um uh, uh using uh, smo so oxygen saturation so um you know little things that you can put on your legs or your arms to that, that kind of um measure oxygen saturation in the muscles um all, all these sorts of things you know can be super interesting but you, you have to kind of apply occam's razor and go really how much value does it add? Uh, you know, let's cut the bullshit kind of thing. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense, David. Um, I have a little follow up. So you threw you threw a lot of stuff out there that you're you know you're you're leveraging now to to improve what you do. So would it be uh, safe to say that you know sort of the um, the access to information and the access to you know previously two techniques and technologies that were only previously available to you know maybe pro teams maybe it has it would it be safe to say that that access is the real innovation or the real game changer in the last couple of years for uh 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the, the price point has dropped dramatically on, on, you know, some things that were sort of vaporware to your, to your average athlete. I mean, just as an example, you know, you can get your hands on a device that, you know, will measure drag on the bike for a couple of hundred dollars now. Um, and you know, is that valuable? Um, I mean, I would argue, I think you could debate the, the, you know, the, the, the accuracy of the number. You can have that long winded debate with the manufacturer, but ultimately if it's measuring consistently, then, you know, when an athlete goes out and uses a device like that, you know, they can clearly see, you know, oh, if I, you know, if I'm not holding my position on the bike, you know, it has a significant impact on me or, um, you know, maybe this is the right helmet. This is the wrong helmet, um, for me. Um, and, and, and so th- there's definitely so much more access to, um, you know, mechanisms of assessing your performance, um, that go beyond, you know, a stopwatch at the pool or at the track. Yeah, for sure. I mean, probably the most uh, the most relevant example to everyone is a power meter, right? I uh, they started yeah, at absolutely. three thousand three thousand dollars, and now you can get one for you know five hundred bucks on a single sided. And uh, I, I, you know, I can count on my um, my one hand of how many of my athletes don't have a power meter these days. Everyone, pretty much everyone's packing one. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely it's definitely something that lasts. Uh, that allows people to um, have a better understanding of what they're doing, and then it becomes a case of you know asking the right questions. So from from that standpoint as well, uh, looking at all these athletes who are relying on all this technological data to get them through a race, uh, do you think there's a, a negative aspect of that of that as well? Where um, if a power meter battery fails, or if you lose your heart rate monitor, or something like that, then people are just completely paralyzed in the race and don't have the ability to uh, assess their own body condition without the help of technology. Like, do you think we're becoming over dependent on things? Uh, it, it's a great point you make, uh, uh, Andrew, and I, and I think um, you, you know I always I always make the point that you know the most important computer is the supercomputer that sits between the ears. You know, the reality is if you take a seasoned professional athlete. Um, and stick them on a bike with a power meter and say, look, you know, let's go for a bike ride. Let's just ride along at 200 watts. They can probably ride at 200 watts with a good sense of perception of effort, give or take 10 watts. Um, that calibration has occurred over many, 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 many years of, of training, you know, with and without training devices. Um, with your with your typical, you know, age group athlete, they're maybe not, as well calibrated and, and swimming is a good example you know you take a you know a, a seasoned say x division one swimmer and they can probably get in a pool and uh, and swim you know a certain pace to within a second uh, there's not many triathletes on the planet that can you know hold a pace in a pool to, to within a second um so you, firstly you have to understand that and then the second thing is i i always make the point to people that these devices are there to help educate us. That is it. They're not, you're not a slave to these devices. So a a good example would be the analogy on, on the bike of saying, you know, power is, is like the speedometer on your car, you know, 70 kilometers an hour. 
is 70 kilometers an hour and is 70 kilometers an hour. That's kind of not negotiable. Um, but your heart rate is um, much like the rev counter and your perception of effort is much like the fuel economy gauge. So if you start to pay attention to all three of those signals and you start to learn to correlate the relationships between those and, and understand how they diverge or converge under certain circumstances, then you're much more informed to be able to make intelligent decisions in a race if the power meter packs up, you know, or, you know, you forget your heart rate strap or, um, you know, you don't have a power meter and you forget your heart rate strap and you're just doing everything on feel. Um, you know, I, I think there's always a need to under, you know, to kind of uh, manage through measuring in both training and potentially in racing. Yeah. And definitely the, the bigger picture side of things, um, looking at the combination of all the different metrics you have, that's certainly important, but, uh, having spoken to a lot of athletes, uh, once, once they get their heads down and they're just kind of hammering through a race, sometimes they lose the, uh, the perspective of everything. And does that become a challenge as well? Just maintaining that cognitive ability throughout a race. Cause I know, especially when you get to the end of, uh, for example, an Ironman leg or, um, just any hard effort, your, your brain power kind of, uh, <laughs> starts to taper off pretty significantly. Um, so. yeah, I mean, there's obvious reasons for that. You can, you know, that can be through some glycogen depletion, um, or, or thermal stress, um, or dehydration. Um, and, and definitely that, that mental aspect is, is something that can be drained and, and shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be, you know, overlooked, you know, as a consideration, whether it's the swimming and the biking and the running. Um, but there's also a, a need, you know, for athletes to, to, to kind of calibrate their humility um, you know, we've all been at races where, um, you know, individuals come blasting by us in the first half an hour of an, of an Ironman bike uh, or a half Ironman. And, and you wonder, really, seriously, is that, <laughs> is this happening? You know, and then sort of half an hour, 45 minutes later, you see that person again and they've completely blown up. Um, so I think there's a need to, you know, to, to kind of calibrate one's humility as well and, and understand, you know, the limits of, of your racing capacity. And it's something I talk to pros a lot about is, you know, this idea of, you know, at the professional level, racing is, you know, it, it is stochastic, you know, just, you know, you can have the debate of sort of physiologically, the best way to approach a race is to, you know, have really even effort in the swim, bike and run to the maximum potential that you're capable of. But the reality is, is it, it's stochastic. And as a consequence, um, you know, many athletes at the pointy end or professionals need to understand it's a bit like a game of poker. You need to know your hand. And, and the reality is, I would argue about 90% of athletes out there tend not to have a good grasp of what their hand is. You know, a bit like playing poker with five cards, but only seeing two of them. Um, if you're going to bet, if you're going to bet or bet big, you know, you need to know your hand. I echo that big time, David. I think I find that also with, uh, with in my experience in coaching. So is there anything that, um, you know, as far as uh, getting back a little bit to what you were talking about, using all of these uh, physiological metric devices to self-calibrate? Um, certainly race experience is invaluable, but is there anything specifically that you ask your folks to do in training that 
helps facilitate that process, that process of, you know, here's what X watts feels like, here's what this heart rate feels like, here's what this pace feels like, and then trying to get them to internalize that uh, that perceived exertion and, and relate it back to those uh, mechanical output numbers. Yeah, I've definitely used a variety of situations, whether it's heart rate based or uh, power based or pace based um, to help people calibrate. Um, and sometimes you can work backwards and um, from a planning perspective and, and somebody says, um, okay, I, I want to swim this time in an Ironman in nine months time. And you say, okay, Right. Well, you know, knowing knowing you as an athlete, knowing your potential and your physiology, having some insight to your training, I don't think that's an unreasonable goal. So let's kind of do a little bit of a gap analysis and say, you know, where are you at now, and where do you want to be? You know, what does that look like as a as a as a training session that would be a reflection of that performance? You do that gap analysis, and then you say, right, okay, let's maybe try to. Uh, do certain workouts where we swim at the speed that we want to be at in nine months time. Um, but maybe we have to chunk it down, you know, so you might say, Oh, I, I want to be able to swim 1500 meters in the pool in this time. And, and at the moment that pace is unrealistic. So, okay, right. So, you know, can you do 30 by 50 at that pace with a short recovery or even a long recovery? And then can you do 15 by a hundred at that pace? And then, you know, and that that's, partly grounded in fitness but also partly grounded in sort of neurology and people's capacity to maintain you know their stroke mechanics right no i'm i'm with you on that uh switching gears a little bit uh, david this is something that i'm i'm keen to i know you and i have talked about this uh, quite a bit but uh i'm keen to hear you talk about it on the uh, on the show um and that is the way that you've uh, you assign hard workouts where you give your athletes some license to chop them up or parse them according to their, you know, maybe their mental well-being or their state of rest. Um, can you talk a little bit about the strategy behind it and uh, and how you go about doing it? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, part of that came out of, you know, the, you know, some years ago, the, the push towards polarized training being the next big thing. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it was the next big thing but you know what we saw from the science but particularly from dr stephen sealer is you know if you do you know polarize you know training such that you do a certain um amount of of intensity at, at certain work rates that you know you do get really good physiological development in athletes um i think what's unique about triathlon is you know we have swimming we have biking we have running we're really the only sport where athletes are persistently training in fatigue states from other disciplines. Hmm. And, you know, they may well be using other muscle groups, but ultimately they're getting in the pool with tired legs or they're getting on the bike with, you know, achy shoulders and and back from swimming. Um, And and that's really unique. And, And so that places a cognitive demand on athletes you know, day on day, week on week. And and so I looked at Stephen Sealer's work and I said, well, this is great. But, you know, actually maybe rather than being really prescriptive with, you know, a, uh, a you know, the, the, the reps and the sets, you know, ultimately as a coach, if I feel an athlete needs to do 30 minutes of work at this intensity, 
then it, surely it's better for me to say to the athlete, look, all I need you to do in today's workout is 30 minutes at this intensity and you're allowed this much rest. Slice it up as you see fit. And, and hands down, what I've found is far, far better compliance than saying, oh, I need you to do this VO2 workout that's four by four minutes with you know two-minute recovery. Right. Um, what's also interesting about it is that um, I think it also allows people to kind of implicitly um, understand their own physiology. And, and what I mean by that is that you can have somebody that has a really small anaerobic capacity on the, on the bike. So it, not to get kind of too sciencey, but just imagine that's like an overdraft facility um, and you've got your threshold and then you've got like an overdraft facility above that. Um, if somebody has a really small anaerobic capacity that, that, you know, that we know we can quantify in sort of kilojoules of work, then it may well be that actually this individual, it's, it's actually physiologically impossible for them to do, um, you know, four by four minutes of VO2 work with a two minute recovery. Because, because actually they're not getting enough recovery to replenish or they're not, you know, they're blowing through their ability to work above their threshold by halfway through the third four minute rep. And then, and then they, they, they physically can't complete that workout. That sets them up for, you know, a, a sort of almost a mental state of failure. And, and the reality is it's, it's not a failure. It's like it's physiologically impossible for them to do that. So when you hand the capacity to, you know, pass the workout back to the athlete, give them that autonomy, they can, you know, they, they 99% of the time create a situation that meets their sort of physiological capacities and meets their sort of levels of mental fatigue. And, and the interesting thing is, is when I actually reached out to, to Dr. Stephen Celia and, and told him about this and said, look, this is, I think your work's great, but you know, this is what I've done with it. He said, wow, that's super fascinating. I'd love to know, you know, the, the kind of compliance on that. And, uh, and I said, well, I can give you a broad spectrum answer of it's really, really good, but if you want numbers, then, you know, give me a research assistant to log <laughs> into my training peaks and they can go through 500, 600 workouts. And having been on the receiving end of, uh, of some of those workouts through, uh, through my coach who you work with Alex Vanderlin, and, um, it's, it's a really interesting psychological process that you go through and kind of what we were talking about before having, or knowing the cards in your poker hand, uh, it gives you a much better idea of what you're physiologically capable of. Um, but I've also been in workouts. I, I just haven't been able to finish and it's devastating psychologically knowing that maybe I should be able to do this, but just on the day I can't. And then you start to get inside your own head. And then for me, it just kind of falls apart and, and the motivation drops off there. And it's really tough to go through that. But having the self-parsed workouts, um, it gives you a little bit of latitude and a little bit of uh, leeway to work within how you feel on that day. And and I think it's fantastic. It's, um, it's, a, it's a great adaptation and great innovation within training. Well, I think it's you know it's an interesting it's an interesting point because you know, there's so many coaches out there that talk about the swimming being you know it's very technical it's very neurologically driven you know you need to be very present you need to be very engaged um, and then we don't talk about that on the bike or the run and and the reality is I just I just don't think in this day and age you can separate you know the psychological from the physiological um, and and that's you know ironically that 
you can go back some time to I can't <laughs> I won't I won't name the scientist, but you know he commented how that you know there was a stud, study done within his research group um, where they managed to persuade the uh, the ethics committee to let them use a low dose of amphetamines on some cyclists <laughs> and they have they were able to show that you know with a low dose of amphetamines that cyclists were able to push themselves harder than when they were sort of fettered cognitively um and, and so you know that it, it's such an important point to understand you know the broader the kind of broad aspects of sort of mental load and it's it's also why something like heart rate variability is a, is a nice little tool in this day and age if you have a phone with a camera on it you know that you can keep an eye on because ultimately what that is looking at is systemic fatigue so you know are you you know worn down by the dis, you know distressing relationship you're in or the boss that's an <laughs> asshole excuse my language um you know and and how does that impact on your ability to do your training and and so we we, we have so many tools to hand um in this day and age that uh, you know I, I just think you know if you're a coach operating on an intuitive basis i just you know you're you're in the stone age you know you're just you're gonna get left behind um you know you can't you just you can't there's too much capacity for accountability in this day and age for one to operate via means of saying you know this is a workout that you know i think works i don't know why it works but it's worked with a few people and that's what i'm going to just make you do uh, frankly that's bullshit yeah i mean i from sort from uh i'll just uh have a quick point to make i just to echo david's uh david's point i've uh i've certainly been using these self-parse workouts with my athletes quite a bit um and 100% compliance is much, much better than any any of the, the you know, the, the traditional Siler style VO2 max workouts. I also find that with the right individual, giving them ownership of, uh, you know, kind of putting their faith in their own hands is very empowering. And, uh, and I get actually more work and less, you know, less quit or, or uh, delayed onset quitting, if you like. Um, with that yeah. kind of with that kind of approach with people because they own it you know if you need to take a break you take a break but then they they can they get they can play the game in their own head where they'll see like well how far can i make it well maybe i can go a little bit further and then you you can sometimes get a little bit you know a little bit more work or more than they they thought that they could do just because they have that ultimate ownership and no one's standing over there you know over them with a stick about it yeah, I mean, I think the same analogy applies to like you know planning for a race. You know, uh, you know, good coaches, you know, help athletes. You know, produce a race plan. You know, how you can execute this race. You know, the you know like a, a very process orientated, you know, document you know, in a sense. Um, and you know, probably traditionally, and and I was guilty of this in the past as well. Um, you know, many coaches would would write that race plan out, you know, based on their wisdom and their insight into the training. And then, you know, you know, many years ago, I got to a point where I realized, yeah, actually, this doesn't really make any sense when we look at it from a sports psychology point of view. You know, the athlete should be writing the race plan. Um, and they may not understand how to plan that process out. And that's where you guide them and assist them as a coach. But ultimately, if they write that race plan out, they write that process out, they own it 
they take ownership of it, they hold themselves accountable to it. Whereas typically when a coach writes it out, you know, then it's it's easier for the athlete to, you know, to, you know, to change tack or, you know, um, sort of not adhere to, to the instructions. And at the end be like, well, you know, it, you know, it was, it was your plan. You know, I don't, I don't think it was realistic. And so that's just another situation where, you know, you need to play to the sort of uh, the athletes, sort of mental uh, mental strength. changing gears slightly uh, i want to go back and and talk a little bit about uh the the minefield that is uh nutrition and race prep um so we've um yeah. there's there's always been fad diets that have come through um uh, but what what is your belief around proper nutrition um and how how you prepare for a race do you believe that athletes should just eat what makes them feel happiest and allows them to perform best in training or would you prescribe a certain diet to people uh and same goes with race weight do you feel that um you should just target a weight that you race fast as that or uh or target uh something that is traditionally a faster or a better weight to race at so lighter typically for runners uh things like that okay let me let me let me pull that apart into the two questions one is race weight one is um nutrition and and that nutrition one needs to probably be split into a few topics as well um race weight um almost an illegal topic with me um my view is um you know if somebody comes to me and says you know i i want to improve my body composition um and 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 it's clear that there's probably a, a health and wellness reason to do that then then great that's that's a health and wellness approach um to obsess over a certain raceway really dangerous ground um to my mind you know if an athlete is getting faster and they are getting fitter and they are getting stronger don't really care what you weigh um you know that that's my candid view on it um you know so I, that's that one covered off um yeah and I'm, I'm quite glad to hear you say that as well because uh <laughs> i was i was gonna say the exact same thing i'm really happy because i'm also uh, you know a lot of my guys that i coach and girls are gonna hear this and hear you say it david and i'm very grateful for you having said that it's, uh, you know, yeah, you can, you can say, you know, you can look at research and say, yes, you know, we can look at, um, the physics of running. And, you know, if, if, if you weigh this much less, um, you know, then the actual kind of load on the joints is this much less. And that's all quantifiable in this day and age. But the reality is it's just a really slippery, dangerous slope to go down. And, and you see it, you know, Kona is a perfect example. You see, you know, a bunch of athletes, you know, rolling up in Kona, you know, 3% body fat, um, you know, teetering on the edge. And then they wonder why, you know, things crumble on, on race day. And it's because probably the reality is they spent the last, you know, five, six weeks chasing, you know, uh, a, a certain race weight and, and they just blew their adaptation to pieces. You know, there's clear evidence around if you're running calorie deficits below a certain point, you basically may as well, you know, you're wasting your time trying to adapt to your training because it's just not going to happen you know so 
you know, the, the, the hard rule with me is, you know, with my athletes you know, that are performance orientated is, are you getting faster? Are you getting fitter? Are you getting stronger? Yes. Great. I don't care. Um, the nutrition aspect, um, let's get onto that one. Um, I think for the majority of individuals that are eating a healthy balanced diet, you know, getting into, you know, concepts of, carbohydrate depleting and replenishing leading into the race is it you know you're you're worrying about spark plugs when you should concern yourself with the engine you know the reality is is most people back off the volume or intensity and or volume and intensity leading into a race and and if they're eating a healthy balanced diet then you're kind of pretty much carbohydrate loading anyway um so that that's kind of the sort of 80% of folks kind of view the the other 20% is, you know, maybe if you're chasing the sort of leading edge of performance, then, you know, there may very well be a need to manipulate, you know, your sort of dietary intake in terms of fats and carbohydrates, depending on training sessions and depending on time of day, depending if you're wanting to get certain sort of adaptation responses. Um, but I, I just don't think that, you know, for your average age group, that's really something to need to be concerned about. Um, the one thing I will say is, you know, and, and it's kind of well documented and proven is, you know, if you are wanting to go fast in the context of your own physiology, if you're wanting to go as fast as you're capable of, um, then you need carbohydrate. You know, it's this whole low carb, high fat diet um, or paleo or whatever um, is, yeah dumber than a box of rocks um if you're interested in going fast <laughs> um now if the debate is <laughs> i'm looking to improve my body composition i want to just get around the race that's a different debate um because maybe that individual is operating at you know a percentage of intensity of their vo2 max that that means that really that some of these things actually are, can be put on the table as a consideration. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting to hear just your opinion about this compared to everyone else, and it's uh, it is refreshing knowing that um, you can eat the way you you feel best and and basically not have to focus on on killing yourself on diet and and being able to uh, uh, to target what you want to target specifically as opposed to following just a very prescribed um, uh, diet and uh, just how everything's laid out, kind of like a training plan that's put, uh, you know, 20 weeks in advance without knowing how you respond to anything. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, a good rule of thumb, I mean, not, um, not to be facetious, but a good rule of thumb for most people is if you can harvest it or you can kill it, you can eat it. <laughs> And, you know, what does that mean in real terms? You know, in, in most Western countries, that means that you shop around, you know, another phrase, you shop around the outside of the supermarket because most supermarkets put, you know, produce, put fresh produce, you know, fruits, vegetables, grains, meats, fish, those dairy, they put that around the outside edges of the supermarket. Um, that's, uh, as far as takeaway that I think is an excellent piece of advice there. Just, um, <laughs> just something simple, like shop around the outside of a supermarket. Yeah. That's, um, I mean, you can have a cheat day, you know, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with having a, you know, a cheat day here and there, 
Um, and, you know, if you take it to an extreme, there's also examples of where people have just eaten terrible food and have still actually managed to perform. But I think the caveats there are those individuals, you know, are ridiculously naturally talented individuals in the first place. Um, and so have, you know, a lot further to fall before things start crumbling, physiologically speaking. Well, in the interest of time, I think we should probably wrap things up now, but this has been a fantastic conversation we've had here. And I think every time I speak to you, I learn many new things. Um, so I always enjoy the opportunity to have these conversations. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today. Not at all. My pleasure. Good to catch up. Thank you, David. Yeah, I uh, certainly echo what Andrew says. Um, this is this is a ton of useful information for our listeners. And uh, uh, I thank you for taking the time. No problem. Uh, and I'll uh, speak to you both soon.